Hello and welcome to Signal of Doom and it's the Christmas season and I put, I'm representing a Chuck Dixon interview we did with Chuck some years ago, one of, one of our favourite conversations with Chuck who's always a great friend of the show and we thank him for that. I also want to take the opportunity to say Chuck has a new Kickstarter project that's entering its final days, Midnight's War, that he's been doing at Arc Tunes. They're putting that out as a graphic novel. Uh, look, I strongly recommend you guys pick that up, support that in the last days of the Kickstarter. It's been well-funded. It's a great product. It's basically vampires in a dystopian future running the world. It's craziness. I love it. Um, so there's that. Uh, I also want to say a big thank you to all the Signal of Doom supporters uh, over the years, and this year in particular. We've seen a real uptick in all our regions, in Australia, US, in Europe, in Asia. I'm not sure what else there is, but um, I mean, UK as well. I guess that's Europe, but they like to put themselves to one corner. Uh, there's been UK listeners that have come on. That's been fantastic. So I want to say thank you for all the support, and I wish you a very Merry Christmas. Hey, this is Chuck Dixon, and you're listening to Signal of Doom. Well, you know, for me, the action is the juice. I'm in. Okay, welcome to Signal of Doom. We're here with big friend of the show, Chuck Dixon. Chuck, how are you? I am doing great. That's fantastic, Chuck. Now, Chuck and I battled the internet demons to get here, didn't we, Chuck? It's hands across the world again. I'm calling from Sydney, Australia. You're in Florida, right? Yes, I am in Tampa, Florida. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and, and, yeah and, and Microsoft made it as hard as possible for I us know. to talk today. <laughs> it's like they wanted to try to lock it down. They didn't want this to go out, but it's going out anyway, you know. <laughs> now, first, first things first, Chuck, I want to kick off. Um, you've had some huge news with your Levon Cade novels. Um, they've been picked up by Sly Stallone's production company. Am I right? Yeah, yeah. His brand new Balboa Productions, and uh, Sly and I have been talking about this for a while. He tried to place it at a couple of studios with him as producer. Excellent. But, you know, he's got his. Yeah, he tried to previously place Levon's trade at a, at a one of the studios he works at. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, ran into the usual bottlenecks. And then once he started his own production company, you know, he said, yeah, we're, we're going to do this on our own. This is fantastic news. I mean, Sly is such a smart businessman. Like, some people don't realize this. He's, he's, he's fantastic, you know? Yeah, he's, he knows his business backwards and forwards. Mm. And, and the guy's a workaholic. I don't know when he sleeps. He's got so much going on. Mm. But he's so happy now because he's got, you know, total creative control. I love it. What he's doing now. Yeah, there's no interference in and there's no smarter guy yeah. anywhere yeah. for how to get a movie made. You know, start to finish, he, he knows how to do everybody's job. So he, and uh, look at his career. Look at his oh, yeah. career. It's just amazing. Like, he's lasted and lasted and lasted and keeps coming back again and again with hits, really. Um, I mean, he created three, three successful movie franchises, and he engineered his own comeback, which that's not easy. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, my God, I remember being a kid in the 80s watching. I came in like midway of the Rockies, like Rocky 3, Rocky 4. They blew my mind. And then Rambo. I mean, and he's yeah. got another Rambo coming, doesn't he? Yes, he does. He's, in fact, he's shooting it now. Oh, my God. I can't wait. 
yeah, yeah. He's been he's been telling me the story of it for a couple of years. Yeah, I can't wait either, man. I'm living for this next ramp up. Let me guess, it's pretty violent. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't it? Um, it's like sex traffickers, slave traffickers, or something yeah, like that. Release this in the United States. It's too gory. They, <laughs> yeah. And 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 then, and then they did. I mean, just amazingly visceral movie. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So, Chuck, where are you up to on this? Like, what, what's the situation? Do you think that they he's got, you know, a writing room working on it? Like, are they going to develop a pilot for, you know, networks, cable channels? What's a, what, do you know, what do you know about it? Well, he has – they've got a showrunner mm. and, uh, and they've, got, they've got a writer working on it. So uh, I don't know if they're going to do pilots or, you know, a lot of times, you know, with, with his imprimatur, a lot of times, you know – Streaming services or premium cable channels will just order the full first season. That's fantastic. And, uh, that's that's who they're they're aiming at. You know, they they assured me that they're not going to go to the networks, which I okay. was relieved about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, let's not forget, like the, that. What he's bought is a fantastic series of books that you've done. That I mean, I absolutely. You know what I love about the books as well? Yes, it's his kick-ass vigilante character with um, you know, the great relationship with his daughter. But each book is different. Like, the challenges he faces are different. Like, the last one, they're over in, like, um, I forget, is it Iraq or Afghanistan? It's in the yeah, Middle in East. Iraq, yeah. 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 And, and the other ones, like, the one where they're in the snow, you know, you, um, yeah. I love that one, man. And, like, each one, you sort of changed it up. You know what I mean? Yeah, I didn't want to do, you know, I didn't want each one just to be the same formula as the mm. last one. So, mm. you know, the, the first one is like his origin the second one is it, 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 it it's a lot of it is involves a heist story the third is a chase mm. you know uh, yeah. the, the, the fourth is somewhat of a mystery story and now the the uh levon's war obviously is is more of a war story yeah and it's a very compelling one and at the same time as the war's going on um his daughter's facing problems going through sort of the system yeah i mean i, I I, it it kind of makes me laugh because I'm writing these like action He-Man action stories, but <laughs> I've gotten the readers so involved in the travails of this 14-year-old girl, and it really pleases me. You yeah, know, well, like, yeah. They're almost more interested in her than they are in him. <laughs> well, do you remember it was in one of the um, book? It might have been the second or third book. You had the Russian girl. I think she was a Russian girl, and um, yeah. and I was just like so obsessed with her story. <laughs> <laughs> and I got to the end. I'm like, D- is she okay, Chuck? And you're like, she's fine, David. Like, she's okay. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. My problem with a lot of vigilante stuff is that they concentrate on the lead character, and everybody else is a cardboard cutout. I wanted to avoid all of that. I wanted yeah. every character to be seen vital, well, be vital to the story, and and make you interested in who they were. Oh, look, it's great, and I, I mean, I'm re- it's something I'm really, um, you know, going to keep my eye on for sure. I, and I, I wish you all the best with that, Chuck. I mean, I think it's fantastic. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. It's a, I'm still getting my head around the fact that this is going to happen. <laughs> well, mate, you, you deserve it because I know that, like, you've had. I'm sure, given your vast career, you've had many a project being put on hold. But this one with Sly involved, I feel there's heat on him. You know, there's just always heat on Sly. And yeah, and especially now he's he's just coming off Creed two. He's got Rambo coming out. Like it's a good period kind of thing for him. Yeah, yeah, it's he's in a good place in his life because, like I said, he's got creative control. Yeah, for the, for the first time in a long time, and uh, he's That's just right. a happy, happy man. This guy just likes to work on movies and TV. He's just uh, 
uh, like I said, a workaholic. That's fantastic. Now, Chuck, yeah. we're going to take um, – we've got a lot of questions. I've, I've put some questions out to Signal of Doom listeners, and I've got my own stuff. But we're going to take a trip back on the time machine first because you know me. I'm a Conan fan, okay? Um, and we have Conan fans on the show. Um, and I th- and you, uh, with your savage sort of Conan run, um, like late 80s, wasn't it, Chuck? Um, I want to sort yeah. of take – can you take us back in the Savage sort of Conan run when you were writing, and I consider it the best I've read in the comics of Conan easily, where were you in your career when you got onto Conan and what was the process, um, you, you know, to get hired to do Conan? Well, um, initially, um, my, Larry Hama was the editor. and My initial contact with him was because uh, I was I was talking on the phone with an artist, Hilary Barta, mm-hmm. a comic book artist, and he told me that Larry was looking for people to write War stories and westerns for a relaunch of Savage Tales. Okay, and I thought, man, that is so in my wheelhouse. And this time, I'm working as a security guard at an insurance company. Really? And in in so real that's life, where, that's what you were doing. Yeah, that's where you know, quote unquote, career was nowhere. <laughs> I was working as a security guard. Right. So I, um, I, I called Larry on the phone, and I, you know, basically convinced him that he needed. Uh, my help, mm. <laughs> you know, um, and uh, he said, okay, you know, he wasn't that convinced. Sure. So he said, you know, send in some plot lines and I'll see what I like. So he sent in a bunch of plot lines mm. and uh, he bought about half of them and said, put me to work doing cowboy stories and war stories uh, for the short run of Savage Tales. Which is really and your then, cup of tea as well, like war stories oh, and westerns. Yeah. That's kind of your jam, isn't it? Like... Yeah, yeah. I mean, superheroes, they're okay. I enjoy writing them, but boy, <laughs> give, give, give me a good cowboy story or, you know, any kind of shoot 'em up and I'm, sure. I'm in heaven. But, but, you know, from there, he offered me the uh, the, the King Cull backups. Oh, yeah. And so, King Cull, if listeners don't know, is also a Robert E. Howard character, isn't he? Am I right? The Cull of the Glanners, yeah, is yeah. that right? Yeah. Yeah, he's a Robert E. Howard character. He exists in the same world as Conan, but like maybe 500 years earlier. Got it. Okay, yeah. So, so uh, I'm handing the call scripts. He likes them. I'm handing them in on time, hmm. you know. And I, I keep giving him plot ideas for Conan stories. Yeah. And each each time he would go, well, I have a Conan writer. What are you trying to do? Take this guy's job? I'm like, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, Larry. I exactly what I'm trying to do. <laughs> so I, I kept sending them and kept sending them. And then one day I get a call. He says, come up, uh, come up to Marvel and I'll, and we'll go out for lunch. Now that had never happened. That had never, he had never asked. Right. Never cared to meet me. Yeah. Never, certainly never cared to take me to lunch, but he called up. So I go up to see him and, uh, I go into his office and he's not there yet. His assistant is there, Pat Redding. Uh-huh. And she says, uh, we'll sit on the couch and, and Larry will be here soon. So Larry shows up and he's carrying a briefcase. And he looks at me and he says, who are you? I said, you know, it's Chuck Dixon. We're having lunch today. And he goes, ah, oh, was that today? I mean, already this guy's not happy to see me. <laughs> I like so this said, Larry Hammer. He's got a lot of attitude, hasn't he? I sort of like oh, it. Yeah. Like... yeah, yeah. But he's a sweetheart when you get to know him. But, yeah. man, the, the, those first encounters can be rough. So he sits down at his desk. He pops open his briefcase. And the only thing inside of his briefcase is a Three Stooges videotape. <laughs> and a Colt 45 automatic. Really? <laughs> right, really. Wow. And he, look, he looks over at me sideways to see what I'm, I think of what's in his briefcase, right? <laughs> and I said, is that a government model? 
And then his whole attitude changed. Yeah. He, he liked it. He's like, I, I like this guy. Yeah, yeah. So we go out, so we go out for lunch and him and Pat Redding and me, and we're sitting in this Mexican restaurant and uh, about 15 minutes in, and he goes, Pat, um, Chuck's going to write three issues of Conan a year. Right. And halfway through lunch, he says, Pat, Chuck's going to write six issues of Conan a year. Wow. At the end of lunch, he gets the check. He's, you know, signing for it. He turns to me and he says, describe Conan's world in one word. And I said, cruelty. Wow. And he said, Pat, Pat, Chuck's our new regular Conan, right? <laughs> I love it. And it's the good title as well, the Savage Sword title, isn't it? The black and white one. Oh, oh yeah. It was, it was heaven. 50 pages. Yeah. You get to tell one big honking story all in one place, you know, in that larger format. Yeah. And working with the artists. Yeah, that were assigned to him. Well, I was going to say, like, your, your artists, yeah. Chuck, uh, like, I mean, did you work with John Bashema, Ernie Chan, uh, Gary? How do you say his name? Is it Gary Kaspowitz? G- Gary Quapitz. I love his art. Can I just say that? Yeah. Him and you working on Conan, it's some brilliant stuff. Yeah, Gary and I clicked from the beginning. Gary is the guy I've collaborated most with over my career. We've literally done thousands of pages. Really? You're doing something with him now, aren't yeah. you? Um, are you doing P? Is it the Woodhouse thing? Yeah, yeah. He and I are adapting the PG Woodhouse's Right Ho Jeeves, and we 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 also do a weekly comic strip for Edgar Rice Burroughs. Really? Uh, dot com, uh, Pellucidar. And oh. I think we're on our fifth year. So. Wow, you are a busy guy, Chuck. Like, I mean, you, you've always got so much stuff going. Yeah, I don't yeah, know where I'm, you get your time, man. Like, seriously, are there three of you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I just I just stay way ahead of schedule, and I'm. Somebody said, "What's your writing schedule like?" And I'm like, "I'm always writing." <laughs> yeah, well, that's good, man. Um, now, what I wanted to say is, like, on Signal of Doom, okay, we have a couple of disputes. We have a character dispute over Conan. My co-host Stuart thinks Conan is essentially a very boring character, but to me. Conan is one of the classic characters that's managed to survive into the 21st century. And every, I've tried to you know, do Conan on the show, but I foolishly haven't done your Conan. I've done like older Conan and all this. But how did you, like you said cruelty and your stories just crackled with atmosphere. What was your approach and take when you sort of took the character on? Like, how are you like, I'm going to differentiate this and make it super exciting. Because some of those old Conan stories are very wordy, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to stay away from that. In fact, when I look at my early Savage Sword, I'm, I'm surprised at how wordy I was. Um, yeah. but, but not as wordy as the guys coming before me. Well, some of them, it's it's like they seem to have forgotten that Conan's this really fun character. You know what I mean? Like, I, I always say he's both boisterous and brooding. He's both, you know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. But he's, he's you know, he's a fatalist. Uh, and he's primal. That's the thing that confuses people. He's primal. He doesn't. He doesn't really think about what he's going to do next. He doesn't yeah. ponder anything. It's no. just, you know, his first reaction is the one he goes with, and usually there's blood on the floor. He trusts his gut, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, my thing was is that, you know, I, I, I treated each story like it was the first Conan story the reader had ever read because quite yeah. possibly could be. And so my mission by page three was that you know everything about Conan you need to know. Yeah. And, uh, okay. Then I just went from there, and you know the, the the challenge is coming up with, you know, things for him to do. Obviously. Sure. So so the uh, you know you're introducing supporting characters and and and, and whatever crazy situation. 
he well, gets himself into. You, you had those uh, ladies, like Red Sonia, but also were they called the Iron Maidens? They were sort of the Iron Ma- the Iron Maidens. Yeah, I love yeah. them. They were they're a lot of fun. Tell tell us because you invented Crom Count the Dead, didn't you? That's you, isn't it? Yeah, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> How did you come? Because I love it, and, he, and and like it's for me. Sometimes it's just like a picture of Conan, and I just write under it, Crom Count the Dead. It's my reaction. Like, how did you come up with it? Was it just like a just a spark in your brain, or what? Well, I, I, you know, leading up to getting the Conan job, I've been reading a lot of Icelandic sagas. Okay. And uh, like Vikings, the chance, is, it, is, the is it Vikings? Or? Oh yeah, 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 the, yeah. There's this there's this thing called the Volsung, and it's basically about all the different sagas of the different heroes of Iceland, and of course they're Vikings. Wow. And. and uh, there's some just astounding stuff in there, and then and then from there I started reading about the history of the Vikings and, and King Harold Hadradi and stuff like that. Yeah. And the la- the last king of the of the Vikings, Harold, uh, I mean, he had exploits that were so Conan esque. <laughs> I, I just stole all of them. I just borrowed all of them. <laughs> Why not? Like you, you're stealing yeah. from the best. <laughs> I mean, he was he was born on a battlefield. I mean, whoa. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then he did crazy stuff in his life that, you know, you know, one of the things I wrote, you know, Larry was saying, this could never happen. I said, but it did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I showed him, you know, Harold's saga and, and they, they didn't lie. They, there wasn't any, uh, you know, folder all thrown into those stories. They're, they're, they're very bleak and fatalistic the way Howard was and they, they fit perfectly. So that was sort of my jumping off. Point. Sure. sure. So you, you... count the dead. Yeah. That mindset. Isn't it amazing um, how Robert E. Howard just was so ahead of the game way back then? Like, those stories are just so, as you say, primal, and they, they just work. And he wrote them, what, back in the 30s or something, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, 1930s, you know, probably working for, you know, a penny a word. Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Weird, weird tale. And he didn't write that much. He wasn't that, well, he died very young, but he was... Sure. Wasn't even that prolific, but boy, he made an impact. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've I noticed one of the things your Conan always says about money is he wants enough after the riches are divided up to spend in the flesh pots of the South. <laughs> <laughs> that sums up like he's in, he's in it for the cash, and then he knows where he's going to spend the cash. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's very clear on the idea he's not going to be retiring. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love it. It's just it's just gold. Now, I don't know if you know this because I, I I mean I know like. You know, you're not you're not closely following the comics from Marvel and stuff, but Marvel are bringing him back. Um, they've they've bought the right. rights back, and they've got good creative teams attached. Uh, Chuck, they do actually. But my yeah. worry is they will like editorial will basically neuter the character. Do, do you think that will happen, or will they let Conan be Conan in today's world? I, I have no idea. I mm. mean, the rules are kind of off. Um, everything's so crazy. Yeah. Uh, in the entertainment business, and, and especially in the comic business. I just, I mean, I see what and I said, man, if the writing matches this, it's going to be great. Yeah. But, you know, but like you said, if editorial says, well, he's got to ask the woman permission first before he kisses her. You know, I mean, we, we, we had a thing back <laughs> in, uh, when I was on Savage Sword, um, you know, you had the sex scene, you know, as much as we could get away with in the magazine. You yeah, know, Conan, yeah. Conan got around, you know, and and I, if there was a woman in the story, you know, he hooked up with her. You know, yeah. that's what readers expected. And, I put it in. And, and that was pretty normal. Tom DeFalco, for, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Tom DeFalco told my editor, he says, you got you to gotta lay off the sex scenes. <laughs> <laughs> you 
have to let off the side things, right? And, and, he, and Larry's like, why? It's always been in here. And Tom said, I don't know. It looks like they're enjoying themselves too much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They're, they're no longer just monologuing. They're, they're, they're kind of enjoying themselves now. But, like, I yeah, don't know. They didn't look all grim, you know. (laughs) I just don't think there's much point to having Conan if he's going to be so PC compliant. Like, I'm not saying it has to be, you know, crazy. But part of the charm of Conan is that he's from another time. And he's essentially a good-hearted character. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he's a a rogue. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a heart of gold. But he's not evil. You know what I mean? Like... Well, yeah, see, that's the problem with, with the PC culture is they, they won't leave things the way they are. And, you know, it's like over here, we, you know, we have these books. I don't know if you know about them in Australia, but they're very popular here. The Little House in the Prairie books right. that, that were written by, you know, Laura Ingalls Wilder. And it was about her experiences growing up on the plains of America in the 1880s. Right. And uh, they're, they're doing everything they can over here to ban those books because they're not politically correct. Well, of yeah. course they're not politically correct. She wrote them in the 1880s. I know. I Look, I... That's a whole other conversation, Chuck, isn't it? And I have such a, like, you know, I'm, you know, you know me. I mean, I, I am quite liberal in a lot of ways, but I have such a problem with, with banning material. Like, I really feel that that is such a slippery slope and people are rushing into it so unaware that what they're banning, it could be their stuff that's banned next. Like, the flavor of the day. Do you know what I mean? Well, they also they, – they don't look at the value of what they're banning. They only look at the reasons for banning it. Like, you know, there's been a lot of libraries that have removed Huckleberry Finn uh, from the libraries because it uses the N-word. Well, but yes. Huckleberry Finn was a early proponent for freeing the slaves and all yeah. this. I mean, you know, it's – it's no. it, look at what the book is about, not I so agree. these little birds out. And, 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 and Twain was writing for his audience, and that language was accurate to the time. Just leave it the hell alone. Yeah, you know? I mean, if you don't get uh, it, leave it alone. You, you're missing the point of Huckleberry Finn if you're banning it for that reason. Like, right, right. It's <laughs> like banning Moby Dick for you know he kills a whale. They're in danger. I know like, it's it's what stupid. What the hell are you talking about? Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. Now, look, something I wanted just to, to start wrapping up on Conan, like Lovecraftian um, overtones, are certainly part of the Howard books. Um, yeah. You know, he uses them. He was they were they were friends, and I noticed in the latter half of your run, you really lean into the elder gods all of a sudden, and it's bleak and dark. I loved it, Chuck. Like, was that a big moment for you where you were like, we can really go there? Yeah. Well, well, basically, Larry uh, called me on the phone and said, uh, "The Lovecraft stuff's public domain now. You can just use oh, all of it if you yeah. want." And I'm like, "Oh yeah." <laughs> like you said, yeah. I, I leaned into it hard. Why not? Like, I mean, it's got. It's got, like, I would, like, you know, people always want to fictionalise and, and go back in time. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in a room with those two, like, their ideas buzzing off each other. It would have been quite fascinating, I think, like, Lovecraft and Howard, like, to, you know, what they spoke about, really, you know, and their creative yeah, it, juices. The, per- the personalities would have been good, too, because I see, you know, Lovecraft is this real reserved New Englander, and then you got Howard, who's probably all over the room, this big, loudmouth Texan. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's quite a contrast, isn't it? Yeah, like it's yeah, it's yeah. a real contrast. Um, now, I had the feeling, because I've unfortunately just gotten right towards the end of your run. I've been reading the Savage Sword ones in the collection. Um, I've got the impression that you just had so much fuel to burn, like you weren't even close to done. Like, you know, I'm, I'm reading them going, no. you, you know, it feels like you, you, you have more Conan, you had more Conan in you at the time. Am I right? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Gary and I would have stayed till the wheels came off. I mean, for years after that, when I would call Gary and say, hey, I, I think I got a job for us, his first answer question would be, is it Conan? <laughs> it's like, no. No, Gary, I'm really sorry. <laughs> well, he like really shines. He, he shines. I mean, we should pay some credit to the artist because Gary does shine on those issues. Like, he is a huge part of, like, that sort of the black and white style just really suits him, doesn't it? Oh, absolutely. And he was, he was working in the Duochet board, the craft tent, and just, just gorgeous stuff. I mean, uh, yeah, he was real into it, and uh, he was into doing the, you know, I say research, you know, you want mm. the stuff to look authentic, even though it's a made up era. So sure. he and I relied on, he and I relied a lot on like Osprey books and stuff like that for weaponry and, and, and costuming and armor. How does the Conan run? Like, I mean, you've done so much. How does it stand up in your own mind with all your other accomplishments in your career? Do you look back at it, you know, and think, yeah, that was a, a landmark? Yeah. I, I, yeah. Well, it, first of all, that being regular writer gave me enough of an income to quit being a, security guard well that's a plus and, uh, yeah and, and, and set a and set a uh, a wedding date uh with my wife oh congratulations and, yeah you know, i actually had a future so um, <laughs> well i didn't know i had as much of a future as i had but you know it looked like a like a good gig yeah and then uh but i look back and i go yeah i you know i i did okay i i Definitely. you know i five years on conan it's a good run and uh I really wouldn't change any of it because, uh, oh, you know, yeah. I had the right editor and the right artist and the encouragement, and I knew the character. And Isn't I'm it happy fun? with what I did. There's there's nothing yeah. I would go back and change. Oh, definitely not. I mean, if anything, I would say just more. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like... yeah there you go. Yeah, another <laughs> five years. Another yeah. five years at least. Isn't it funny you mentioned Larry Hummer? He, he comes up, um, you know, in the history of kind of especially in Marvel, like G.I. Joe, the Nam comic, um, obviously Conan. Like, the guy obviously knew what he was doing, you know, like – um, just, just from the distance I have, I'm like, this guy obviously had something about him, you know? Well, yeah. And like I said about Sly, he knows every aspect of the film business. Larry's the same way. Mm. Larry can literally do every job on a comic book. I mean, uh, he's a terrific artist. Yeah. Uh, hell, he's a terrific letterer. I mean, <laughs> he's just really good at everything. Wow. He's and, in a, he's uh, a real all rounder. Did you see the, um, uh, the, I think they call it the things that made us it's like the 80s show about all the toys and stuff and they do a gi joe one and he's on that yeah. actually doing a talking headpiece it's really hilarious because he talks about him on the tv show they wouldn't kill and he just called them cowards it was pretty funny yeah. they, were, they were they were moral cowards i mean yeah larry is uh larry he's he's one he's just got his own way of looking at things that's completely yeah. unique to life and you never know where he is coming from on any given subject he is that guy is a true individual and I, he you know as much of a bastard as he could be at the beginning of a, of the creative relationship after that he couldn't do enough for me i mean just you know i owe a lot of my career to him that's and, fantastic and, and he, it's, he inspired because he's a very uh, a very principled guy well, well, God bless him. I mean, I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think he sounds astounding. Um, now, we have obviously have some questions. Um, Neil Matthews, a big friend of The Signal and a big fan of yours, Chuck, has asked some questions. Now, there's a couple. The first one is about Judge Dredd. Obviously, we know you haven't written Judge Dredd, but you like Judge Dredd. If yeah. you were given the job, what would your Dredd story be? Uh, would it be like a day in the life of Judge Dredd or would it be a, a multi-part story and what supporting characters like Anderson, Judge Hershey or Dark Judges, etc. would it feature? Do you, do you have uh, a story in your head kind of thing? Well, actually, IDW uh, 
approached me about pitching for it. I, I came up with a story. It was a big – I can't remember what the whole gist of it was, but it involved a big block war, and it involved – in my mind, Judge Hershey always has to be in the story. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't remember the, the, the all the, because it's been a few years. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't, I didn't get it because, again, I'm an American. So, well, that's sad. That's sad because I, I really pushed them yeah. for another British writer. So. <laughs> Could you have faked a British accent on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. No. I, don't think, I don't think my Scots Irish heritage would allow me to do that. <laughs> um, just, just, just to wrap it up. Like, um, I don't know. Are you a fan of um, from two thousand days? Well, Johnny Alpha, you know, Strontium Dog. You, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I read all of it. I love Flash. Uh, Johnny uh, Rogue Trooper, yeah. uh, Strontium Dog. I, I I just devoured that. Stuff. You know they're making a Rogue Trooper movie. Duncan Jones um, is making a Rogue Trooper movie. Um, yeah, and his name attached to it gives me some hope. It's going to be good. Definitely. I mean, he did Moon. I know he did World of Warcraft, which wasn't a big hit, but he's done quite a few good movies oh, actually. Yeah. yeah, I'm going I'm to give him a pass on World of Warcraft. Yeah. He came on that project late. There was there was no saving it. What a mess. Oh, uh, I agree. No, 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 I'm I'm quite excited to hear that he's doing Road yeah. Trooper. I think it's um it's it's something I mean, in recent years, the last couple of years, I've grown quite tired of particularly Marvel comics and I found myself heading back to Dread just to go back to the original source of what kind of got me interested in in comics. You know what I mean? Like there's something about those comics. Yeah, it, they're 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 dark and cynical, but then they're funny. Yeah, there's I a mean, humor there as well. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean they're they're very satiric, but without a uh, without any kind of real well, I don't know about recent ones, but without any kind of real political viewpoint, you sort of come at it, and make up your mind how you feel about things. Yeah, well, like the the interesting thing is, like when I read them as a teenager, I, I mean, I'll be honest, I didn't really understand that it was a satire. I thought Judd Dredd was kind of in the right all the time. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, same here. Same here. <laughs> and then you know, but there's a satirical component, but at the same time, the stories just work. So it's yeah, you know. yeah, that's what I mean. They work on two levels. You can be either be cheering for Dredd or horrified at what Dredd's doing, depending on your, your worldview. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It'd be funny to give them to like just the ultimate like PC trooper. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> One where Dredd's like kicking the face of democracy protesters or something. Well, well the thing is, I mean, the, the character was written for so long by a mixed bag of people. Yeah. I mean, I know Alan Grant; he's a libertarian. Yeah. And some of those people were leftist. So you had every viewpoint thrown in, but the comic never told you how to think about it. No, they definitely just threw not, it yeah. at you, and you, you came at it the way you wanted to come at it. Oh, I'd love to get Alan Grant on the show. I have so much respect for Alan Grant. Like, I mean, his work. And, and yeah, he was like, at one point, um, he considered himself like an anarchist. And it's like, wow, okay. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah he's, he's, he's <laughs> another guy. You get him involved in the political conversation. You know, oh my God! He's like burn it all down. Ready, yeah, oh yeah, he's, he's amazing. What an amazing guy! I, I love talking to him because again, he's another one you never know where he's going to come down on any given subject. Yeah, and I think sometimes that's the charm of of working with people, though. Really, like that. Like, not everyone needs to agree with you on everything. It's part of the problem today. Everyone thinks that we need to be on the same page on everything. It's not going to happen. You know. Well, I like talking to people, you know, with a different opinion. But my guideline is: you have to have earned your opinion, not learned your opinion. I mean, yeah, I hear. You. If your opinion comes from your life experience and, and what you've learned, mm. great. And, and if you disagree with me, we'll have an argument, but I'll respect your opinion. But if someone told you what to think, yeah. I have no, yeah. I have no time for that. I hear you, man. Now, um, a big listener of the show, Adam the Computer Crouch, we call him. Um, he always he, he's fantastic with the details. He had a question here. 
I'd be curious uh, about where the decision to kill Ollie, Ollie Queen, and bring in Connor as Green Arrow came from. Was, was that something Chuck wanted to do, or was it an editorial thing? So he's referring to your you know, Green Arrow run in the 90s. Um, do you remember? Well, it was edit- yeah, it was editorially driven. Uh, oh. The idea was uh, they were replacing a lot of the, 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 the B-level characters, Green Lantern and sure. Flash with younger versions to appeal to, you know, a new audience. And, 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 it, and it wasn't only just younger versions to appeal to a new audience, but to give the younger audience a, a Green Lantern or a Flash or a Green Arrow that they felt was theirs. You know? Gotcha, yeah. Was, you know, so so it was a smart move, and, and we did quite well with it, you know, even though mm. older fans were upset. But the idea, the, the decision to kill Ollie originally came down from the top. Mm. And, and originally we weren't going to kill him. We were going to... Uh, remove his arm <laughs> well he gets his arm stuck in something doesn't he and then sadly crashes the well that's that's the, <laughs> well that's the thing so they say to me ollie gets in a trap where he lose he has he loses his arm and superman for some reason superman <laughs> comes to save him and can't and i'm like well what the hell kind of trap could superman save yeah. him from <laughs> right so i'm it it it, it, it it, it's one of the hardest things I've ever done in comics is working that trap out. It got so bad, my wife took the kids and left the house. Uh, I, yeah. She couldn't live with me because I was so like, where, how am I going to figure this out? And so I come up with this trap. Ollie sticks his hand in, and and Superman literally has to cut his arm off with his heat vision to get him out of that plane and away from the explosives. Oh, okay. And so so I set the whole thing up, wrote it, got handed in. Paul Levitz read it, the, the, the editor-in-chief or publisher at DC at the time. Yeah. And he said, nah, nah just kill him. <laughs> Superman didn't get there in time. Kill him. <laughs> well, he did, but he still couldn't save him. I'm like, but I thought of how Superman would get him out of the trap. Now Superman looks like a dummy because he couldn't get him out of the trap. It, it sort of feels like Superman didn't really want to do it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like he, ah, uh, yeah, I couldn't do it. Like, it was a bit hard. <laughs> But, but, but imagine you're, you're, you're tasked to write this story, and yeah. then they say, and then Jesus shows up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what can he do? What do I do now? Um, right, exactly. I must say, I, well, I wasn't reading Green Arrow at the time, but I was sort of reading around it. I was reading the, um, uh, the Green Lantern title. I think they had a couple of crossovers. I've gone back, Adam and I have gone back, and we've done it, been doing a read of the Green Arrow, just slowly your run. It's really good with Connor Hawk, and I don't care at all about Connor Hawk, but I find your run on it, you know, entertaining. And I, and I you know what I mean? It's, it's great when you can get a writer like yourself, and you had a great artist as well, and it makes you care about a character that really you don't care about. Like, you know, but then you do because you read the story, and it's actually very entertaining. That must have been a big challenge yeah, yeah, for you at the time. Yeah, Eddie Fires was really the key. I mean, I inherited the book from Kelly Puckett. Kelly set up the Connor Hawk Eddie, Eddie Fires relationship, right? And then I just expanded on, on what he wrote. That that was the saving grace, uh, so that Connor Hawk just didn't seem like a, you know, cipher. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Eddie would challenge him, you know, ethically well, and morally. Well, Eddie was kind of cool. He was kind of like almost like a corrupt version of like a Jim Gordon or something. Like he was just this yeah. kind of like guy with some angles. Yeah, yeah, very much so. I mean, he was definitely a cut the corners and get the job done kind of guy, and Connor wasn't, you know. And, and that conflict is really what, or, or that contrast is what made Connor interesting and fleshed him out as a, as a full character. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, now, obviously, this is interesting to me, and obviously you left DC 
early 2000s, and I mean, I researched it. You seem to have books around that time like Joker's Last Laugh, Birds of Prey, Robin, Batgirl, You Won. I mean, and I'm sure plenty of other stuff. Cooking at that time, I'm sure I'm only scratching the surface. And if my research right. is correct, you left for uh, CrossGen, right? And yes. Yeah. Was that a... Um, like a tough decision, like you had so much going at DC and, and I know you must have had your reasons, but do, was that really a, like a crossroads moment or was it just like kind of almost like an easy decision? You know, like what was going on at that time to make you cross the road in such a dramatic fashion when you seem to have so many things going, you know? Well, uh, you know, like two years before going across, Jen, uh, Denny O'Neill uh, retired. Oh, I and see. Kinda, yeah. He kind of changed everything. And uh, the people they brought into the Batman offices, I mean, all Jenny and his merry band of younger editors were all gone all of the time. Right. And they were all gone, and now it was new people. And the new people really didn't seem to give a crap. And they didn't really seem to want to have me around. Wow. I was like a leftover they were stuck with. Uh, but a but very productive leftover, though. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Chuck. Like, you know, you, well, pro- you know, yeah. Productive, and my books sold my, my the four books i was doing all sold about the same number so i would i had this block of books that were doing that were doing well yeah and there was no cause to get rid of me uh and i think they kind of decided to drive me away by simply not approving anything i wanted to do so and, checking uh, you out a bit yeah yeah where where the the, the the previous guys you'd come to them and you'd have this ambitious slate of crossovers or mm. whatever mm. and it was always yes 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 you know mm. uh and then with these new guys and the one that frustrated me most was i proposed a uh, I proposed that tim tim drake and batman have a falling out and tim drake gets hired by ted cord to be the new blue beetle pretty cool and, uh, that's yeah, pretty cool and, ted, and, and, and ted cord's idea is he's going to franchise the blue beetle he, there, there'll be blue beetles everywhere and he and tim will find people and, and train them and and it'd be a six a six issue miniseries coming off of that with Tim Drake as the Blue Beetle. I think yeah. it would have sold like a house of fire. It's and a great idea. Six months, yeah. yeah, in the six months where Tim Drake isn't Robin, um, Stephanie Brown, the spoiler, steps in. Love Robin. that character. Lo- absolutely love that character. She's, yeah, and I she's a sweetheart. You got a, you got a one-two punch here. You're, you're going to up the sales of Batman because Stephanie Brown's in it, and you're going to up this, you know, have this brand-new six-issue miniseries and possible ongoing yeah. following. And, and uh, it got rejected and rejected and rejected. And I, I, I just I yeah. just can't see the reason for this. I, I was so frustrated that when Cross Channel offered me the opportunity yeah. to basically come down to Florida and do whatever I wanted, I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. No, I hear you. No, yeah, I totally hear you. I was, I've got a question um, about, about Cross Channel because that's a, that's a great answer, Chuck, because from a reader's perspective like me, like we were – I was in – Hobart, Tasmania. I was so far away from the action, but we knew your name was just on a ton of stuff that we liked. You know what I mean? And it was kind of like just like a, it was like a good twenty percent of the comics coming out that we that we read, and because <laughs> you, know, you were doing a, you, you were doing a lot of comics. Do you know what I mean? Like, and yeah, it was just yeah. kind of like so. In later years, I was kind of like, where did Chuck Dixon go? Because like it was there was so much content for for a long period. And anyway, so. Now, with CrossGen, okay, um, there's a pirate book. Uh, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. El Cazador? Yeah. Uh, it's as good as anything I've read in that in that pirate genre. I love pirate stuff. Like, um, was that a passion project? Like, you know, were you, when you went over there, um, were you given sort of the reins, like, you can do this and that, and you're like, was, was El Cazador your idea? Did you come up with this one? I mean, I, I thought it read really well. 
I, not only did I come up with it, but I did it. Um, I did it under the radar of the people that ran CrossGen. Really? <laughs> uh, what, yeah, what, like on your own time, kind of thing, I and they just pitched it. Well, no, it, it was during business hours, and Steve. But but um, I kept, early on, I brought up the idea of a pirate book, and yeah. it got shot down. Right. And I I looked at what CrossGen did, and we were a genre publisher, mm-hmm. and, and, and every genre we did, we approached in an earnest manner. And mm-hmm. I thought, man, if anybody's going to do a good pirate book, it's going to be this company. Mm. So I just began. I took I. I took Steve Epting off of the book we were working on and just simply we started working on El Cazador. And I think Steve was like 10 pages into the first issue yeah. when Mark, Mark Alessi, the head of CrossGen, yeah. found out he right. was working on a pirate book. <laughs> and, and, and I uh, I got you know yelled at, but it was too late in the process at that point. And, and I remember Mark, uh, Mark said, we didn't hire you. To, so that you could do whatever you want, and I said, "Well, I'm not doing whatever I want because Steve would be drawing a western." Uh, but I said, now, I, I, "I said now is the time for a pirate book," and it was it was a lot to uh, take on because we really wanted to be, make it as accurate as we could, and Steve and I did mountains of research to get everything right. We even had books on knots to make sure the knots looked right. See, this is something I think a lot of people, and me included, don't realise the research that goes into making these comic books. Because I read that pirate book and I'm just like, man, that's just a great read. There's great characters. It does have a real nautical feel back at the time. But as you're saying, you're putting in kind of outside research time just to, you know, I I shouldn't get the art right as well, you know, like so it looks authentic. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah. We had just piles and piles of books for visual reference. We had pirate movie movie posters hung all over the offices it was, it was really cool but it was, it was a lot of work but it shows i mean yeah. the book is absolutely freaking gorgeous it's fantastic so. um steve epting by the way what a what, another great name he's a really good artist like he he's done like velvet with ed brubaker in more recent years like he's a very yeah. talented guy well and- he's, a, he's another guy you know who he was at marvel and really wasn't getting the respect he deserved i mean i love this stuff but mm. the editors didn't seem to get it. He comes to CrossGen and really shows his stuff, and yeah. then now he's a superstar, you know, which he always deserved all along. He sure you know, did. A lot yeah. of guys, a lot of guys went to CrossGen and revitalized their careers mm. because they were allowed, you know, for the first time, given all the time they needed to do their best work. What I find really interesting, because I'll be honest, I, I didn't know about it at the, you know, at the time. I was sort of in and out of comics, but. What, researching it, it seems like it was a very ambitious move from a guy, this Mark Alessi, who had outside money. And I, I know the, 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 the end was they filed for bankruptcy, but I admire the gumption behind the whole thing. Like, it's kind of like, it, it, I don't know what it was like working there, but it seems like this guy had the cash and wanted to set up sort of an independent publisher, and he hired, like, the best talent, really. Um, that yeah, takes some balls, some- you know? Yeah, by some miracle, he hired almost almost everybody. He hired were guys that were self starters who could meet deadlines. Yeah, and uh, that was unusual. Yeah, it, you know, it's cool. Hired so, total total pros. And how did it? Um, I mean, because you were there for what? How long? A couple of years? Was it two or three years? Uh, or like three years? And was it? It must have been tough because was the market. In the early 2000s, didn't the market go through a dip or was it coming out of a dip? Like, what was it like on a business angle? Like, there must have been a stack of pressure if this guy had his own money in the company. And, you well, know, I, I, talked, I talked to Mark recently and he gave me some of the behind the scenes stuff. And I had no idea how much pressure there was. I mean, I knew there was yeah. pressure when I was there, 
but yeah. I had no idea how much pressure was on him financially. Uh, I mean, he was carrying the weight of the world there. So oh, he was hurting as well, like yeah, yeah. He, yeah. Was, he, he got he got hurt more than anybody else. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people say, "Oh, he he kept his money." No, he didn't. He 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 was all in on cross gen, uh, and you know it failed. Wow. And yeah. you know, I like I said, I've talked to him recently about this, and I told him, I said, "Look, what we were doing was rowing to shore, and we just didn't make it. Uh, yeah. We had movie deals, we had." game deals we had all kinds of stuff in the works yeah. and we just didn't last long enough to for any of them to see their way to fruition that's I a goddamn shame that's a real shame yeah, I, mean, I mean there's a film director i still talk to about way of the rat you know because we mm. were that close right yeah way of the rat was another one of yours from there as well wasn't it like a uh like a sort of asian um what was it yeah, Pit- martial was it? arts fa- martial arts fantasy i mean most people remember the talking monkey <laughs> wow so was there a moment because i mean i'm 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 pretty ignorant to all this like because i wasn't aware of it at the time but what were you for for like five minutes competing with dc and marvel like when you're sinking all this money like did it did it show in sales like we we did okay and we had a niche market and that was another problem we had was the people running the company didn't understand what we were at some point the readers tell you who you are right. tell you what they expect yeah. And what they expected us was genre publishing. Right. But like we Western, Pirates, you know. Whatever. And, they, yeah. and and the thing is, every time we did it, we did it earnestly. I mean, if you wanted a good Victorian mystery story, we had one. And it was good. And it wasn't tongue-in-cheek. It wasn't snarky. It, yeah. You know, it was an earnest story. And uh, But the people running the company were just in love with this idea, this Uber story about sigils. And, and I, I like read that. that on Wikipedia, and I just – so they had some sort of big story behind it all kind of thing. Right, right. Yeah. And, and all the books related, and like I'm doing a, a book about Celts, you know, in the time of the Roman era. Cool. But it can't be, it can't be set on Earth. It has to be some made-up planet, you know. Uh, Way of the Rat was on some made-up planet. And it's like the, all of this takes the reader out of the story. That's why when we did El Cazador, it's set on Earth in the past. There's no sigils. There's no yeah. supernatural anything. And, and, we, and that was our biggest selling book. That was the book where readers went, oh, they're finally giving us what we want. It sounds like there was a little bit of almost like video game logic going on with those sigil ideas. Like that sounds very video game cutscene to me, you know. Yeah, very, very like world building. And it's like every. Every, every you know every reader is not going to read every book and and yeah. we're going to see diminishing returns and we warned about the people that like me who had been in the business and seen stuff like this before kept warning you know the danger signs are here our sales are going to begin to slip and they, well and you're they coming go. off 10 years or however long Ed, on batman and stuff like you do know what you're talking about you're not like a newcomer to the industry so well yeah and i had seen a lot i've worked for a lot of small independents that went out of yeah, in the eighties. Yeah, I've you, written a lot of companies to the grave. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, final question on this because it, it is fascinating. I, I imagine there's there's a book or a, or a doco in it. Um, at, at the end of something like that, when it, what happens to the stuff like your pirate story? Does it just become the property of the liquidators? Like, did you retain anything with that kind of uh, stuff? No, Disney came in and bought the whole thing at an auction. Disney I, I bought. Joked- I joked that they even rolled up the carpets. Yeah, uh-huh. Disney Disney ended up buying it. There was only one other serious uh, – I don't even know how serious he was. There was only one other person right. at the auction, and Disney quickly outbid him, and they took everything. And uh, they, you know, so it's all 
you know, right. somewhere in the Disney vaults, probably forgotten by them. Too. Yeah, yeah. They sort of just shelve it and, and they're like, okay, we've acquired this part of this universe. <laughs> yeah, I think there was like one or two properties they were interested in and they did a little bit of a little bit of stuff with them and, yeah. then, and then nothing. So. Right. Yeah, okay. Well, look, it, it, it sounds like, I know it, it didn't work out, but it sounds like a bold experiment. Do you know what I mean? Oh, like, it, yeah. It was, it was. And unfortunately, nobody's ever going to do it again. The idea of, having all your creative teams in one place, you know, uh, working together. You know, and and cherry-picking some of the best talent. Like, when they came to you, Chuck, they must have been like, there's a reason they came to you. You know what I mean? They're like, this guy's a big name. He's been on Batman, this and that. Like, And I know there were other names involved. Well, they had a lot of good artists. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Butch Geist and... Uh, I love Butch Geist, Chung man. You, you've done some work with Butch Geist, didn't you? Oh, yeah, we did Birds of Prey for a while, and then uh, we did a thing called Storming Paradise, and then he did the first arc on Winterworld, the new Winterworld. Oh, man, that's the what I was thinking of, that, that and Birds of Prey. I, I think Butch Geist. I, I'm such a fan of some of these artists you work with, Chuck. I mean, uh, I would say you're lucky, but I think it's, you know, I, you must have these connections because these guys, like Butch Geist's art, like on Birds of Prey, some of those issues, man, it's just fantastic. You know, like it's so much better than a lot of comics that come out. Yeah, I've been blessed with with a, working with a whole lot of great artists, including some legends. I mean, just, it's, great, it's uh, you know, slap me, I'm dreaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, Chuck, I, I want to um, mention some stuff on um, Batman. So we've spoken before in a previous, um, you know, interview about Nightfall, which to me and Stu on the show is one of the absolute highlights of Batman. Um, I wanted to dig into something a bit with you about Batman, Batman in the 90s. I believe I read... In, or heard was in an interview somewhere that you you had mixed feelings about some of the events that happened post nightfall while you were there. Like for example, to me that sequence from nightfall into contagion into cataclysm and then eventually no man's land was just so brilliantly conceived. And I thought, like as a guy in the nineties, like Batman was just being pushed to the absolute limit. It kind of mirrored what was my own very kind of white college kid existential darkness period. And I was like, man, Batman's deep in the shit now. And it seemed like it went on for years. Turning to you, who was, you know, involved heavily with all this, what was your reservation? Or am I, or am I misreading? Like, what, no, no, you're not you misreading. I, uh, Cataclysm was, I think Cataclysm was the first one. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. It went uh, Contagion no. into Cataclysm, the earthquake, yeah. Okay, okay. Contagion, I, my thing about Contagion was, you know, uh, is this really a Batman story? Because, you know, you want to give him a threat he can do something about. Sure. And I, and I just didn't think it was all that well thought out. You know, right. Uh, well, it was a plague then, that basically enveloped Gotham, yeah? Right, right. And then and then uh, Cataclysm would seem more like a Superman story to me than a Batman story. The, uh, yeah. Okay, the earthquake we pulling, that destroys it. Yeah, we were pulling challenges. Challenges out of you know the ether, mm. of Batman uh, after Nightfall, and I just thought, you know, I just thought these aren't these aren't worthy follow-ups. This is what I wanted to ask you because I, I dig what you're saying. I, I actually, it's funny because as it's so funny that we're talking because in the '90s I was always on the edge of getting more heavily into comics, and I always followed Batman. And it was those events that made me went, "Oh shit, stuff's really really Gotham now. I've really got to get involved." And so, it, as a marketing de- device, it worked. But I, I get what you're saying, though. Like, that's my question. Did you feel that, like, the bad office was just was trying to top itself constantly? After Nightfall, you're like, well, what can we do now, you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think they were. I mean, I know, like, uh, uh, 
yeah, Cataclysm came out of a, a New Yorker article mm. about uh, if an earthquake ever hit New York and, and the theories about it. Because like, uh, Scott Peterson, one of the editors, and I talked a lot about. We both read this article and talked a lot about it. Mm. And then it's and, and then they sort of ran with that as the next Batman stunt. Mm. And, and it was a stunt. And the thing is, that's what Denny always tried to avoid was anything that looked gimmicky. Yeah. But he had ex- he had exhausted himself on Nightfall and yeah. kind of left the follow up to his younger editors. Nothing against them; they're great guys, great creative guys. Yeah. But they they just didn't come up with you know anything. I, I you know I can't say it'd probably be impossible to equal Nightfall, but yeah, at least come up with something worthy of a follow up to Nightfall. I, I hear what and you're I, saying. I just can't yeah. say it. And, I, and I and I voice these complaints, you know, yeah. until they were. Until they were sick of hearing from it. <laughs> well, I mean, at the time you were doing what detective, and then you went on to like do you were doing Birds of Prey and um, Nightwing and stuff. Rob, like, yeah, Robin. Yeah. So you were heavily in the universe um, more than anybody else. Yeah. yeah so your books were certainly because I will say this: having read not that long ago your whole Nightwing run and your Birds of Prey run, you very much have your own stuff going on. That this then happens, and you very you, you you work it in nicely. But I can tell that you've got your own stories that you're completely happy with, and you don't need this you know cataclysmic event kind of thing. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, it, I mean, I, I guess the wheels came off for me when uh, they got into No Man's Land. Right. And I voiced I voiced my uh, objections to a lot of how that was set up. I right. like the idea, but I yeah. think the setup wasn't didn't make any sense to me, and uh, I kind of got thrown off the team. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've we've had enough of you. Yeah, that was sort of, I hear what you're saying. And look, sometimes isn't that like whether it's comics or something else? Sometimes that is corporate life. Like you just outlive a moment where they go oh, yeah. in one direction. You know what I'm saying? Like because for me, No Man's Land has got moments of brilliance, but it's very, very long. Like, I'm looking at it on my shelf now, Chuck, and it's like two or three prelude trades, then four trades. And it's like, I don't consider it, like, it's good, but I don't consider it as good as Nightfall, which I think is, like, you know, the best kind of thing of the 90s, Batman. Yeah, just my my, my early thing on No Man's Land was there, there has to be, like, a single event that causes them to quarantine Gotham. You know, maybe Poison Ivy does yeah. something that yeah. actually makes the city toxic or something. But just the idea that, you know, Congress votes to wall an American city off of it. Yeah. This, this is nuts. This doesn't make any sense at all. And Superman's just kind of like, I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> and then the, 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 straw that, the straw that broke the camel's back was when somebody in, a, in, in the early, one of the early stories, somebody shows up over Gotham in a helicopter just throwing food out to the people below. Right. And the artist, instead of throwing, like, canned goods or whatever, the artist actually had them throwing sandwiches. <laughs> and the sandwiches aren't even wrapped. And they're landing uh, on the ground intact. And that's when I lost it. I said, this doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. And they were like, you know, could you, could you please leave? <laughs> <laughs> You're just nitpicky now, Chuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like, and, and to me, it was indicative of the whole thing. It's like there were so many imponderables. Yeah, that's it's interesting because I mean you're in the what I wanted to ask you about because this is I mean let's let's be honest here, um, you go to the you went, I know you went to all these bat summits and you look you're a big writer and a big personality and I imagine that other guys there had decent sized egos you know oh yeah yeah when you're all <laughs> when you're all pitching in a room like without telling tales out of school did it ever get like pretty heated and you'd have to have like a dinner and you'll come over top okay boys like break it up like did it. You know, uh, we, you know, what was it like? 
Only at lunch and dinner are we told to break it up because we would get into politics. But at oh. the meetings, we all played nice together. We were okay. all very, uh, very much collaborative. There was never any big fighting or, or arguments or, or you know, or people looking out for their own turf. I never saw that. That's Even really though, good. Like you said you, you, you know, between Doug and Alan and me, you had three big egos. Yeah, but, but well, I never, mean, yeah, yeah is... we never fought. Oh, that's good. Like, I mean, because let's face it. I mean, this is something that I think has been forgotten now. Like. I, I get we all have different politics. Do you know what I mean? But it's like I, I, I struggle to understand what, how important that is when you're working with people. Like I work in corporate and really what someone, the guy next to me thinks politically, it's it's not a it's not a consideration really, you know? Yeah, and it didn't used to be here, but it is now. I mean, I visited Argentina in the 80s, right? Right. And, and I, I, I met all these comic book artists, and I would say, well, I want to meet this guy. Oh, you, you don't want to meet him. He's a communist. <laughs> I said, I could give a crap. Yeah. I do want to meet him. So I would go off with, you know, these commies, these commie <laughs> artists. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't like commies either, but no. I want to meet this guy, you know. Yeah. And uh, and I thought, man, I hope, it, I, hope, I hope America never becomes like this, this divided. But yeah. we are. We uh, are. Unfortunately, it's, crazy. it's here too, man. It's not as bad as in the states, but it's getting there. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, um, yeah. yeah it's. it's yeah, I, I, I hope the tide turns back and people start acting more sensibly. Well, yeah, I think there's a. Like, what do you call it? Like, I think there is a. I don't know if it's a majority, but there is still a certain amount of people who just don't care, who just want it to be over. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah seriously, that's most people. They don't yeah. want to hear it. Exactly. Now, um, final question uh, on this kind of script stuff. Like, when this is, this interests me as a writer. Like, to me, writing is a fairly solitary experience. Like, when you write a comic script, you know, eventually, or a novel, you, you, you're sitting in front of your computer, I imagine, writing. When you're in there pitching, and, you know, Alan Grant's pitching this, and you're pitching that, and, you know, Denny's greenlining this, and he's, he's saying no to this. How do you go from where you've got, like, the stuff you've you've been talking about in a room with other people to then the script? Like, how similar is it? Like, how do you remember it all is kind of what I'm trying to sort of say. Well, what we would do is um, we we had whiteboards, and mm. the assistant editor's jobs were to write down what we told them to write down. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you would end up – I remember one time we were, like, completely surrounded by, like, five whiteboards with, with a whole a whole, like, year's worth of continuity laid out on them. And on the whiteboard, it would be a sign, you know, detective issue number this, you know, begins here, ends here. Okay. So then afterwards, we would go back to the D.C. offices and one of the assistant editors would type up what was on those whiteboards. And then uh, we would go home with it and we would know exactly how it broke down and what was expected of us in each issue. And we weren't told how to get from the beginning to the end of that story. That was up to us. But the story had to begin here, had to end there, so that the next guy knew where to pick up. Okay, so that's uh, quite reasonably detailed, really. Like, you know, like... Very, very detailed and seamless. We never, you know, I think there was a couple of continuity gaps in all of Nightfall that we caught early. Sure, and, yeah. uh, but that's going to happen. It was a two-year continuity. Oh, let, let's yeah, face it. it was, you're allowed a certain wiggle room in comics, aren't you, as well? There is a little oh, bit yeah. of, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, so, so yeah, but th- th- that was the process, and um, I think we, you know, we did a good job there. Oh, you you certainly three. did. But, you know, you had three pros in the room, too. You had yeah, three definitely. guys really earnest about what they did. And without getting into sort of, like, personal stuff, like, how was it when, um, you know, you would have people who, you know, you weren't working as well, like, you know what I mean? Like you, you can't. Not everyone who walked through the building you mustn't have been, you know, best mates with. But like, 
How was it? You, you know, I'm just trying to understand because to me, a lot of you guys are very big talents and big names. Um, is it kind of like at times you just agree to disagree and just do your own stories? Like, surely that's part of it as well. Like, you know, yeah, you can take care of Batman. I've got detective or, you know, I've got, you know what I mean? Like, were there moments where it was just like, okay, we'll just, we'll just cordon it off and Chuck can take care of this part and, you know, someone else can take care of that part. Does it get to that point? Yeah, there, I mean, I've clashed with other creators. Mm. Um, but you're a likable uh, guy, I find. You know, you're. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I only care about the work. I don't care. Yeah. You know, you can laugh at me all day. I don't take myself very seriously. Mm. But I take the work seriously. And sure. There, there was a time when I happened to be in the DC offices and they invited me in on a conference call with another writer. Mm. And this other writer had proposed the story over the phone. He wasn't there. We're all sitting in a room listening to this on a speakerphone. Mm. He proposed a story in which Commissioner Gordon finds out that Batman is Bruce Wayne. And right. they were going to let it fly. And I was like, whoa, 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 what? What are we talking about? Yeah, this is a big you know, moment, guys. Like- this is a big moment, <laughs> and you're going to blow it off in one issue, and you shouldn't be doing it anyway. Yeah. Because, you know, and, and I, I had to, I'm sure the writer was on the other end of the phone steaming. Sure. But I was like, you cannot do this. I said, think about what the general public, the, what they understand about the Batman continuity, and you're about to change that yeah. forever. And I said, uh, Think yeah. of the action figures and the cartoons and all the rest of it. And I finally convinced them to tell this guy, no, you got to come with And think about that that if he knows that, he, he knows, and I mean knows, knows that Barbara's Batgirl and, you know, there's more, right. rep- like, I like that he might know, but you don't, he doesn't kind of want to know or whatever, but I don't want to have, he 100% says, I, you know what I mean? Like, so we can't turn well, back two, from it. Yeah, there's two schools of thought. He either... He, oh, he's such a good detective, he would know and decides he doesn't want to. Mm. Or, or the way I feel about it is, uh, why would anybody even think about who Batman is when he's not Batman? Because you would just assume he's Batman all the time. True. When he's not Batman, he's asleep. How would he have time to be anything else but that? Yeah. Exactly. It's like when they say, oh, the Clark Kent Superman thing doesn't work. And I said, of course it works. That works. Who would assume that's, that's a the craziest idea is that Superman would be anything other than Superman. Why would he take a low-paying job as a newspaper reporter? That's ridiculous. And, and a part of me just says, listen, it works. It's worked since, like, 1930-whatever, and it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, 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 it's charming as well. Like, we don't need to reinvent the wheel. I, actually, that's, to be honest, the Clark and Superman thing, it's like, yeah, I don't need to hear your essay on why it's stupid. You know what I mean? It, it actually does work. <laughs> yeah, you just, you, you, just, you just made the best argument of all. It works, it's, and, it, and there's a charm to it. Yeah, yeah. leave it alone. <laughs> now, Neil Matthews, and thank you for that excursion, um, Chuck, into into sure. the past. I know it must be hard, man. Like people fire questions that you're like, okay, back in 1993. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, I'll tell you what I remember. Obviously, I can't tell you what I don't remember. <laughs> now, I've got, I've got a, another question from, um, from listeners, but I've got one myself. If you've got, like today, 2018, you've got carte blanche to go on a comic project of your own, artists hired and paid for, so the financial aspect's covered, and you're your own editor, so you've got Final Cut. In any genre, certainly doesn't have to be superhero, where, what do you, where do you go, Chuck, with a project like that? Where do your instincts take you? Wow. I mean, I'm kind of doing that already mm. um I'm, I'm working on a project right now called seven deadly sinners we're almost finished with it okay and uh it's a it's a biker gang it's a, it's a magnificent seven retold as a biker gang story from the 1970s i love it and, already <laughs> yeah yeah well the the best part of it is, is my artist is bob c hard 
who isn't that well known in the comic world, but he used to work on a magazine here in the United States called Cartoons, and uh-huh. it was kind of a mad magazine for for gearheads. Right. And, and and this guy can draw cars and motorcycles like nobody, and and people, and it's got kind of a crazy cartoony style to it, and I'm in love with the whole project. And he and I have been talking about it for 20 years. And what's it called? Seven Deadly Sins. Seven Deadly Sinners. Sinners. Okay, fantastic. That sounds very interesting. And is that coming out, you know, through a publisher, or like, or are you developing that by yourselves? What's what's going we're on? Developing. We're developing it on our own, and you know. Uh, pretty much have my choice of publishers out here in the indie world and i don't know who that's I'm great going to go to, but well, you've certainly been very busy recently haven't you like you've had a lot of oh, stuff yeah. going on those avalon books i've really been enjoying them the street rules ones uh, oh yeah 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 that's fun that's fun that's like superheroes but i'm totally cut loose from continuity i can do whatever i want it's good stuff now yeah. neil matthews um is curious about two titles chuck um then they're along they're in the distant past i think super cops is one yeah. And, and the other one's called Alias. Um, yeah, they were from Now Comics, yeah. Okay, is that back in the like the 80s? Probably late 80s. Okay, late well, late. get ready I'm for this question. I'm trying to think where I was living. I'm trying to think <laughs> where I was living. Um, yeah, it would be like late 80s, early 90s. <laughs> Who was I married to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't have to worry about that. But, but where I was living. What, what house do I remember writing them in? <laughs> now, uh, Neil asks, oh, well, you do remember them, and he's yeah. wondering, is there any um, plans for a sequel for either of these two series? I, I don't, well, Super Cops, to be frank, I don't remember a whole lot about. Sure. Uh, I like the title. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't my idea. Uh, I only wrote a few issues of that. Alias is another thing, I mean, um, there are three unpublished issues of Alias because they stopped paying us, so we, we stopped handing the work in. Wow, okay. We kept on working, but we, but we wouldn't hand anything in. Okay. And at one point, there was an Alias movie that was going to be made, and I kept hearing from the screenwriter, how's the story end? How's the story end? I said, well, pay me, <laughs> yeah. and I'll tell <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer your question, but I need cash. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, send me a check, and, and I'll tell you how the story ends. I love and it. That guy went, and the screenwriter went on to win Academy Awards. So really? Ah, nice <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, come on. Um, I think it's nice that someone, Neil Matthews, remembers them, so he's out there. He's been out there waiting. Yeah. Um, I go. know from Facebook, I think it was on the Dixonverse, um, there was an article about a black and white cop series you did uh, called Mad Dogs. Yes. Um, yes. Now, I think you were telling me that's getting a re-release, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, they're talking about putting that back together with maybe a new story. Uh, I would certainly pick that up. Just, ju- just from the article I read, I was like, man, this sounds like something that, like, I think there was so much value in some of the independent stuff people were doing in the 80s. Like, not just yourself, but, like, a lot of people. Like, a, not, you know, not all of it became as big as the Turtles, but there was a lot of interesting American comics in the 80s that were independent. Well, yeah, and the, and the sales were good. I mean, you know, unless it was a complete piece of crap, everything moved back then. I mean, yeah. you could at least break even or be profitable. It was, a, a, it was a different industry to now, wasn't it? Like, um, now Seriously, we yeah. had a... You know, larger, more diverse readership and more more casual readers. Yeah, it's it's um it's a whole other podcast, Chuck. And I mean, I'm you're probably so tired of trying to answer these questions of what has happened to the comic audience. You know, I don't know the answer, but all I know is it has disintegrated, and yet the movies rule the megaplexes. You know, and they don't transfer to sales. It's it's weird. Well, I think when they when they pulled back from the newsstands, hmm. they sort of they sort of abandoned the whole. Gen- generation of potential comic book readers 
and we always need new readers. We need new kids coming in to read them. Yeah, and, you and need your seven to twelve year olds. Do you really do uh, need? Yeah, you need them. Yeah. Hmm. And there's nothing. There's no real entry level. Uh, uh, the entry. It's weird here in the United States. The entry level for comics is public library. That's where most kids see them for the first time. Because and that's no one good. Wants to do a comic shop cold. You know? No, yeah, and they're expensive too, Chuck. They're expensive. I don't yeah. know if you realize. Like, I I had a younger cousin, okay, who was interested in um, you know, like Spider, like he, you know, he was interested in Spider Man, you know, in that he'd read a couple of comics and thought he was the greatest. And his poor mother came to me, um, my cousin, and she said, "I went into she went into the comics store. She goes, they're so expensive." <laughs> Yeah, like, and I felt sorry for her because, like, you know, she had just no idea, and she thought, yeah, I'll go and just grab a couple of comics. There's not going to be much. And she walked into the store, and she's getting trades that, you know, they're like 25, 35 bucks. And, you know, they're a young family kind of thing, kind of thing. And it's it's like it's hard to it's hard to sort of want to sanction that spending for this young kid when there's all, there's, all, there's so many other options for them as well. Yeah, it's, it's not like, you know, hey, here's a – you know, here's a quarter. Go buy some comics. It's no. like, wow, this is a major investment. I think they, you know, especially on the the uh, the regular monthly comics, I mean, the prices are outrageous. They need to find a way mm. to add more value to it to make it worth getting. You know, uh, do it. Do a thicker comic yeah. for ten bucks. You know, did we uh, dig our own grave? Of, you know, did we dig our own grave in in sort of how like you you you? I mean, you 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 lived it. You know, basically. Yeah around say dark night and stuff everything was was so good like i i I read it and i was like this is the greatest comic i've ever read it's changed my life and everything sort of quality of paper everything went up and i assume prices all went up and then it all went to the you know the stores which seemed like it seemed like heaven at the time but it sort of feels like we did dig our own grave there because as you said it, it the newsstand vanished and that's where i got into comics i was like 10 years old i picked up batman and the outsiders or whatever i picked up you know it was from it was for, literally from like sort of a, a news agent, and they yeah. had they had they had like at least twenty or thirty of the comics, and you could just leave through them. I was poor; I I, I would leave through them in the store. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't rich; I had to be very selective. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, and, yeah, yeah when, when, I, when I was a kid, I was the only kid at our drugstore allowed to look in the comic because I told I would tell the druggist, "I just want to see who wrote through it." You know, I'm not reading. <laughs> <laughs> and he fell for it. <laughs> well, yeah, it was true. I know, I, you know, if I wanted it, I wanted it at home. I'd read it at home. Yeah, I get it. You, know? you actually, you, you cared about because that big moment where they got the, the names on the titles and stuff. It was a yeah. big, big yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, the last thing I want to bring up in terms of indie comics is the one I, the one I'm openly canvassing for you to revive is Law Dog. I mean, this is, I, I got that issue that you re-released on uh, Kindle, you know, yeah. um, Fantastic comic, Chuck. I think this needs to be re-released. This needs to yeah, be, it, you know, like everything else. It depends on, uh, you know, ancillary things. Like sure. we've had serious interest in it as a TV show a number of times, but nothing ever went anywhere. So obviously, if something like that came together, I'd be right back on it. Yeah. Look, no, it's I, it's such a killer concept, and it's it is such a TV show waiting to happen. Like really. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we were we were real close a couple of years ago, and our producer got pulled off to do another series. Okay, so, um, yeah, I've got this some... happens. So you you yeah. harden your heart when you deal with those people. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. I I, I I feel your pain like secondhand. Yeah, I can tell. Like a, it's just constant disappointment, Sli- slight excitement, disappointment. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, now, look, we're doing this thing on the on the signal of doom at the moment, Chuck. You might find this funny. It's it's a seven week poll. 
And Stuart and I each nominated our, you know, our favourite top seven comic runs. It's very subjective, okay? And then we, we wrote them down like one to seven and we're pitching each week, we're pitching each one against each other and then we, we're putting it out to a poll so listeners can vote, okay? So this week, you'll be happy to know Punisher Warzone, my pick, um, your, your run with John Romita Jr., you beat out Infinity Gauntlet by... Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. It was a tight, tight win, <laughs> <laughs> and wow. I have a lot of oh, Punisher fans. Anyway. Yeah, take it, it take like it. A, it was like an election in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we had to in- institute all these rules because I handle the social media and I'm quite the campaigner. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I'm good at getting votes across the line. So anyway, in, um, in, in doing it though, I, I mean, I wanted to bring it up. Like in Punisher Warzone, um, you brought in, uh, I, I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Rosalie Carbone or Carboni? Yes. Um, yes. As like a love, lust, interest for Frank. Now, it just, that whole that whole run I love. Um, did you get at the time, because uh, that was a big moment, I imagine, you, you brought in someone and Frank had a you know, sexual relationship with her while he was like infiltrating the gang. Did you get pushback from readers? Because like, I thought there'd be a certain section of the audience that never wants Frank to sort of experience the sort of love of any woman beyond his dead wife. I, I, I treated it so organically, and mm. then there was the... Uh, <clears throat> the get out of jail free card of well he's only doing this because it's part of the undercover if you wanted to believe that you could believe that you know sure, he's so yeah. deep in this undercover role that he's willing to go all the way on this but well, mike barron mike <laughs> barron and i were trying to get him some action for years and, uh, not, you know, mike 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 used to say to the editors you know he would just pay someone and they were like horrified and I'm <laughs> pay like, prostitutes yeah yeah and i'm like yeah he probably would <laughs> Well, yeah, if I dig into, like, the Frank Castle of that period, like, I mean, he's kind of dead inside in a way. Yeah. You, at least, I mean, definitely how you wrote him. I, I think you wrote him, like, I love Mike Barron's writing on in general. Oh, his punishment's fantastic. Um, you even took his Frank Darker. Like, your Frank Castle likes his coffee real black. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And um, you had great artists that reinforced this really bleak worldview. Um so yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it worked, and I've asked this Mike Barron this question, and, and forgive me if it's a naive question. It just comes from a place of loving Punisher. When you did a stint of several years on a character like Frank, how much of your brain got wired into that way of thinking? Like, were you walking through the supermarket thinking, "Man, like, you know, I'm surrounded by scum"? Like, was it kind of like a taxi driver kind of scenario? <laughs> um, not 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 to that degree, but no. I've always been a you know. Uh, I'm here. How would I get out of this place? Or, you know, it's part of it is um, like a toy soldier or cowboy and Indian mentality from when you were a kid. Sure. And then part of it is being a writer. It's like, you know, you're standing in line in the bank and you're like, <laughs> what if? Yeah. <laughs> you know, what then, if terrorists you know, came in? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's and that's really what The Punisher is all about. Yeah. You know, what if I was The Punisher? It's like <clears throat> I, I'm a big fan of The Sopranos. Yeah. And uh, every once in a while when somebody's giving me crap at a store or something, I just, boy, if I was just Tony Soprano for like five minutes, <laughs> you, yeah. know? Uh, you know, not even Frank Castle. I don't want to kill anybody, but I sure like, I'd sure like to be able to scare this guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, he was very intimidating, Tony Soprano. Like, you know, yeah, like. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when he went off, he went off. Most charming guy in the world till you, you got, got him in, on the wrong morning. He had but, a temper. Uh, he had a temper. <laughs> but Frank Castle, you know, you know it's like, you know, I got cut off in traffic or they're taking too long at the drive-thru. Yeah. Or, you know, the telephone company's giving me grief on the phone. 
if I was Frank Castle, what would I do? I'd go blow the place up and shoot some people. So, you know, it's a wish fulfillment kind of thing. It's like a grown-up superhero fantasy. Oh, I, I totally agree. Like, and it, it comes across, like, part of the pleasure of writing that character must have been you were leafing through the paper and going, oh, my God, this is a story that just is dying oh. to have the Punisher in it, you know? Absolutely. I still think he's the only character I don't write that I still think of stories for. I see something on the news. I go, oh, man, Frank Castle, he should be there. Yeah. Settle that. Oh, seriously. Marvel are missing a massive trick with basically how they aren't, you know, interested in kind of like getting you back there at some level because I really feel like we do a lot of Marvel comics on the show and there's some good stuff, but their Frank Castle angle, they they don't quite get it. Do you know what I mean? They, no, they don't. They don't get it. And, and the thing is, like, I mean, like, I'm <clears throat> to some degree, I'm ostracized because of my politics. But my politics is what the Punisher needs. He's like, yeah. he's like Judge Dredd, like we were saying about Judge Dredd. Yeah. That you know, you're either in into what he's doing or horrified by what he's doing. Yeah. Well, that element is missing from the current Punisher. You know, you're yeah. not either into or horrified by what he's doing. They've sort of weirdly sanitized him, and yet he still does violent stuff. So it's like he's still doing violent stuff, guys. <laughs> yeah, which to me seems more perverse if he's just doing violent stuff because that's part of the story rather than yeah. coming from the heart or having a, a reason. I mean, I remember an, an editor on The Punisher after my initial editor mm. said he wanted a kinder, gentler Punisher. Oh, I said, Jesus. What, I said, what form would that take? And he said, well, instead of killing people, he, he just maims them. And I said, <laughs> you know, that's actually worse. That's yeah. not kind and gentler. He, he, he takes an eye. He takes a leg. <laughs> yeah, he puts a guy in a wheelchair. And it's like, uh, how is that? Man, that's not nice at all. But, like, <laughs> I mean, Marvel seemed to have forgotten, like, I mean, after your run, like, you know, 10 years later, like, Garth Ennis had a long run and his Punisher was incredibly violent. So, oh, well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> they, un- they, they unleashed it. But, you know, it's weird because, you know, even as much of a critical uh, and fan darling as, as Garth is and deserved. Sure. Yeah, 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 uh, it's good, yeah. Even, 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 even they won't even bring him back. Put him on the character. It's very odd. Um, yeah, it's it's just odd. I, I don't quite understand what's going on there because to me it's like that's the character. It's kind of like with Conan, like that's the character. You you know why don't you just not have him if you just can't you know you don't want him because the fans really want Frank a bit more unfiltered kind of thing. Oh yeah, yeah. They want to be surprised. They want to be you know uh, outraged. Yeah, it's it's you know, crazy. That's what they want. This, 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 uh, like Conan, this is a primal character. Definitely, 100%. Now, okay, Michael Kellishim, a regular correspondent on The Signal, uh, sent in a series of questions. Now, Chuck, he's always a lot of fun. So strap in for these questions because he, he's titled okay. them, Behold the Greatest Questions Ever Asked of Chuck Dixon. So, <laughs> Tightening my belt. Yeah. So number one. I'm holding, on to, my, I'm holding yeah. on to the arms of my chair. <laughs> <laughs> number one, it starts off relatively easy. Which deceased artist would you have liked to work with if they were still alive and working? So I assume someone you didn't work with, but who's now deceased? Wally Wood. Okay. I'll take that. I'll, I'll lock that in. <laughs> Wally Wood. He's a legend in the industry. Uh, two, writers are, this is this is a tough one, Chuck. Writers are often asked what is the one project they're most proud of. Instead, which project of yours do you regret so much that you wish you could take your name off it or blame it on a scroll? <laughs> That's a tough one. <laughs> Jesus, Michael, like, are you a fan or? <laughs> um, boy. Um, Did this come from an ex-wife? <laughs> yeah, 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 really, that's an ex-wife. What, 
you most ashamed of. Yeah, oh. well, you wake up at night just, just you know, so sad. <laughs> You've made so many mistakes in your life. Which one was the worst? Um, wow. Yeah, wow. you don't have to answer, I Chuck. I mean, yeah, I really can't think of one. There's none that jumps to mind. No. I know that there are ones that people wish I was ashamed of. <laughs> <laughs> now I think, look, it's it, it, you know, it's a good question, but it's a tough one. Now, okay, here's a, here's more of a, a kind of classic question: Who would win in a fight, the Punisher or Judge Dredd? And not that typical team up schlock where they make friends at the end. Only one walks away. Who is it, Chuck? Jeez. I, I, I much as I love Frank, I, I got to give it to Dredd. Yeah, I, I think Dredd might have him. I, I think Dredd's put a few vigilantes away in his time, you know? And, and he's, he survived everything. Yeah, he's a bit of a tank. Would be a good yes. battle. Would be a very good it battle. It would be. It would be. Because <laughs> Frank be. doesn't go I'd be, down I'd be, more, I'd, I'd be more interested if they shared a beer first. Yeah, I, I would like that. Yeah. To each other. <laughs> yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, <laughs> here's one of his questions. I almost censored this question. Any future plans on a sequel to Raggedy Ann and Andy Go Flying? He... He loves I, this I, comic. I, I, would, I, 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 would, I would write Raggedy Ann and Andy. I get those characters. Okay. I don't think of stories for them. <laughs> no, well, I don't. What if Raggedy Ann and Andy were here? <laughs> yeah. What if? <laughs> if someone came to Chuck offering money, he could write the sequel, uh, Michael. Now, um, five. Who would? This is an odd question. Who would win in an eating contest, Jughead Jones or Matter Eater Lad <laughs> from the Legion of Superheroes? <laughs> I, I don't know who Matarita Lad is. <laughs> One of the sillier uh, Legion of Superheroes characters. And that's okay. saying something. Uh, yeah, Matarita Lad could eat anything. Okay. Uh, could he beat but, Jughead? But, but, I love Jughead. Well, that's the thing. We're not talking about what they could eat. We're talking about capacity. Yeah. <laughs> so I think Jughead wins. Yeah, I, I adore he's not, Jughead. He's not eat a lot of meat or eat a lot of Matter Lad. He's just matter eating Lad. I get you. I mean, I don't know if you know this. I've mentioned this on the show before. Um, apparently, Ed Brubaker has said that when he retires, he just wants to write the Jughead strip. I think that's charming. <laughs> like, why not? Like, why not? He's had a great career. Like, when he eventually decides to hang his hat, he just wants to write the Jughead strip. <laughs> yeah, well, good luck with that. I've tried to write for the Archie people. Yeah, it's tough, isn't it? Very tough difficult. to get through. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they come to me like once every five years because they want a funny story. I thought... I thought they were all supposed to be funny. Yeah, I mean, look, Archie Comics, I, to be honest, Chuck, they've made a lot of moves in the last few years that are pretty interesting. Um, like, they've really varied some stuff up. It's actually, you know, a pretty vital title. They've got, like, Riverdale as well, the show now. Right, and the, the, uh, Sabrina, the yeah. teenage woman on Netflix. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, the Sabrina show, um, my girlfriend and I watch it. It's pretty good. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's it's pretty good stuff. Um, okay, moving on. Uh, number six, if you became Marvel Comics Editor-in-Chief, what would you do to MMGA, make Marvel great again? It's kind of playing on the Trump saying. So how would you make Marvel great again? Um, i just get back to basics, uh, good stories with, with good art, get back to the craft of, of doing comics. Mm. Uh, Agree. I wouldn't go with these reboots or anything else, just sort of yeah. find creators assign them to the book and let them fly let them go yeah and and, and you know I, with that formula you can't miss 50 percent of them are going to be hmm. and don't forget that like i mean look 
oh, when I was reading like in the in the nineties, two thousands, like basically when a new creator came on the title without calling it a reboot, they kind of made it their own. I always found if I was always in it for the guys like you, you it was a long run. You bought into the creator's vision. Um, if you enjoyed it, that was kind of part of the appeal. I always felt. Yeah, yeah, and the thing is, I mean, I mean, you, you were when you brought when you brought on a title that was already existing and took it over from the original creative team. Mm. You were encouraged to stay within their framework, you know, sure. not make it your own with issue one. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. and and that's what I always did. And I I always thought that worked. And you know, because some readers don't even look at the credits. I don't care. Yeah, mean. and it you was know, always and, very. You, just... you don't want to point out. You don't want to point that change out. Too much. I agree, and uh, unfortunately, though. Uh, what happens now, Chuck? It's what happens now is ridiculous. They they have guys on and, and girls on for like seven to twelve issues, and then they kick them off and start again. And it's like, it's how do you build any loyalty? Like really, like no, with the readers? Yeah, it's it's kind of impossible, you know, because it's a it's long form storytelling. It's periodicals, for God's sakes. You're supposed to buy them once a month, and and hopefully for a few years, you exactly. know. And if you keep changing up everything. Yeah. I mean, they'll they'll change creative teams even before the uh, numbers for the issue first issue they did came back. So they don't even know if they had a hit on their hands. It, it reeks of desperation to me. Like That's, you know, it's like yeah, they're so is, scared. A lack of direction, a lack of real leadership. Because I mean, we used to plan out a year, two years of continuity. Well, that mm. takes some nerve because mm. you're hoping you know it's going to work. You know, sure. you'll change your mind later. But as long as, long as it's working, you stay with the plan. You now, I don't think there's any long-range planning. I don't think they know what they're going to publish hmm. next year. It must be, for you, quite satisfying, though, that you are doing your own stuff. You've got a lot of projects, you know, from different people coming in, along with, as you said, like the Seven Deadly Sinners and stuff like that. Um, we, You're running your own race. That must be satisfying. Well, it is. It is. I mean, I refer to this as the garage band era of comics because we're all kind of off doing our own thing. Yeah. And uh, it's, you know, we're, we're getting enough uh, readership that we can actually make a living. Good. And it's very satisfying. And then, you know, the biggest part for me is, you know, we own it. Yes. Yes. And that's really important because something that I bring up on the signal again and again is I really feel that the industry treats its creators, veteran, novice, dead, alive, very poorly and, you know, these movies make billions, and it's so rare. Like, Stanley's the one guy who made money. You know what I mean? Like, it, it really – and even he didn't make the kind of money that really he should have made. Like, it's a very cruel industry in a lot of ways, and I just feel like – and yet it just feels like, oh, that's just the way it's always been, so it will never change. And I just think that's – you know, they're digging themselves a grave because people, like you're saying, like yourself and many others – They'll, well, we'll, we'll, we'll stick. We'll own our creations, and that way, when people come knocking on doors for Hollywood, we can actually sell them and, and make money ourselves, rather than you know Warner's or, or Disney. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's you know uh, you're right. The business treats creators crappily, mm. and and you know there was a moment in the '90s where it looks like we were going to get fair treatment, and sure. that sort of got negotiated away. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, this by, is by people that came in later. Yeah, this is the, like I mean, I, without meaning to get too deep on it, this is kind of the corporatization of everything, though. The, this is what happens basically. This happens in other industries as well, Chuck. Like where it's like, uh, you know, I'm look. Don't get me wrong. I'm pretty. Uh, you, you know, my my views are quite moderate, but I do get frustrated by this kind of stuff. And I, you know, 
I don't know what the solution is as well because it feels like the companies that, that are monopolizing these properties and like squeezing them dry and will for the next, you know, 20 years, they've got no incentive to change. Like until they're, you know, losing court cases, they won't do anything. Well, the biggest problem is that, uh, well, for Marvel and DC is mm. that they're owned by multinational entertainment conglomerates. Yeah. And so uh, basically the Disney and uh, Warner's. Yeah, Warner's are not are not going to pay what these licenses are worth because they own the companies they're buying them. From. Yeah, and that's the biggest problem. I mean, as Graham Nolan always says, if Dark Knight Rises were made by Paramount, uh, he and I would be millionaires. But really? because it was made by Warner's, you know, we got the, we got the money that they found under the sofa cushions. I hear. Oh, I hear your point because of the usage of Bane in Dark Knight Rises. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, if we were paid '90s level money, hmm. even. Hmm. Uh, I think it's really wrong. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll go on. I'll go on record. I think it is actually quite wrong, and I'm surprised not more of it's challenged in court. I know that you people will say, "Well, Disney and Warner's have very deep pockets," but I, I could anticipate a world where it's not just the Kirby estates who are going after them in court. Do you know what I mean? Like some of this stuff, it's well, yeah, but. That's the one we were hoping, all hoping for, that the Kirby uh, state would get to the Supreme Court, which mm. it almost did, but mm. then they took the deal. Yeah. You know, if, it yeah. Had, if it had gone to the Supreme Court, then work for work for hire would have been challenged. Mm. Uh, the whole notion of work for hire, which is unconstitutional. And, uh, and you know the thing is... From... And, uh, it would have been challenged and done away with. Yeah, I, I wish that had happened. Like, I really do, actually. I, I this is this is this is this is a bugbear of mine. But just to wrap this up, this 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 kind of like diatribe from me, um, <laughs> like two thousand AD writers were even treated even worse. Do you know that? Like, they were even. I, I do know that. Yeah. Yeah, and like that's sickening to me that like they you know they would leave to go to the states where the money was better, but like they were treated very poorly. And you hear the stories of of some of them, and it's it's really very sad. Like uh, the guy who did Bad Company, he died like in a mental hospital or in prison or something. Like the the Brett Ewins, and wow. yeah, like it's 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 really quite tragic. You know what I mean? And it's and it comes wow. down to and I saw, I watched a video and he was just saying, oh, there's no money and there's we've got no power and we can't change it. And like they were given checks, I believe. That, that basically were considered contracts. And the, yes, it, it, yes, yes, basically. Anyway, um, we've got a bit dark on uh, Paul Michael's questions. <laughs> I think that was his idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to lead us down this road. Well, his final question is a bit of a feel-good. After becoming comics' most prolific writer and the announcement that your Leave on Cade series is being adapted into a TV show by Sylvester Stallone, are you tired of winning yet? <laughs> there you go. He throws oh, you a rose at the end. Winning. I wake up. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. As somebody said recently, I was, I was, I won lottery the day I was born. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. All right, Chuck. Finally, um, I want to move on to. But before I let you go, I really want to move on to the novels because I love your novels. I think they're fantastic, and I'm an addict of your Bad Time series, that the time traveling army rangers. Now, the last uh, book left us on a massive cliffhanger. Um, yes. What can you tell us about the next upcoming volume? Can you reveal even like the time period that you're setting it in? Is that possible? Well, um, the next book is called Pirates of the Cretaceous, which kind mm-hmm. of lets you know the time period. That's like dinosaurs, there yeah? There will be dinosaurs. All right. Yeah, there will be dinosaurs. And uh, I, the good news for anybody like you who's a fan of the series is that book six is with the editor now. So Great. It's done. 
That's great. And, uh, I hope I hope to have it out toward the end of January. Oh, sweet! Uh, oh, gee, that's so soon. Yeah. And we're doing the well. You know, it's it's self-publishing, so it moves quick. Yeah. And uh, we're in fact we're shooting the cover photo this weekend. So um, and um, yeah, they the, the guys end up back uh, basically stranded hmm. in in the Cretaceous period because there's no. Um, if you remember right, there's yeah. they, they, they they can actually move the Ocean Raj, their their cargo container ship through time, but they can't now because they're trapped back in the distant past with no uh, oh that's with no right tower, with no tower tube to move the whole ship and, and wasn't into all kinds of logistic problems like <laughs> the, the, the water, the temperature, the air pressure, all kinds of things in the Cretaceous that we don't face today. And uh, there's a couple of awesome dinosaur fights and a couple of awesome uh, firefights. Awesome. And, whole, and, and then there's a terrific naval battle on a parallel world between Vikings and uh, uh, a Mughal navy. Wow. From, like medieval. So. This sounds yeah. interesting. Now, if I recall correctly, the last one ended with sort of like an alternate future kind of ending. Do you, you know, there was something was going on, like like some guy was on like a... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Dwayne's being chased by Aztecs riding camels. <laughs> yeah, that, that's like half of the next novel is how Dwayne ends up uh, with his travails. These, these really fun. feel like you are just... It's kind of like... It reminds me of kind of your Birds of Prey run where you would do the back-in-time stuff. and it, but, but, like, you've put into novels. Yeah. It's, it's really fascinating stuff, man. I, I, I picture it um, almost like an animated movie in my mind. Yeah, yeah um, I can see that. Yeah, no, it's cool. <clears throat> now... Now, with this uh, deal cut with Sly Stallone, are you looking to come up with more, like another Levon volume? Is that kind of like, you know, in your future? Yeah, the next Levon volume is called Levon's Time, and I've got it plotted, and I'll start working on that probably in February or March. Cool. Release next fall. Excellent. And my final question before I release you, Chuck, because you have been a yeah. real trooper tonight, is um, what about a Goma sequel? I always ask you about this, the zombie, the zombie book. Uh, any 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 chance? I'm, I'm, work, I'm, I'm working with a guy I know. He started writing a sequel on his own. <laughs> really? And was his name David Finn? Sent it to me. <laughs> no, no. And, and he sent me. He says I couldn't help it. I thought of all this stuff, and he, he sent it to me. And I said, "Well, you know, we'll work together on it." Uh, sure. So I like what you wrote, but there's a few things I like to change. And you know, we're slowly putting that together. So yeah, there will be a go Oh, that's great. I mean, because I think it's fantastic. I know you started doing these, um, you know, a few years ago, and you've really built up some 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 lovely franchises. Like these Bad Times and Leave on themselves are just two kick-ass franchises. But you did, um, like, the Blooded Vampire book and all sorts right. of things. Like, it's right. – I, I really, really enjoy I, – I love zombie fiction. Like, I'm a big Walking Dead guy and, you know, the TV show, and I just like it in general. But, like, I, I really sunk my teeth into that, into that Gomez book. I thought it was great. Um, no, it's a great – it's a great genre. Yeah, it's it's fantastic, and you you left it again. You love doing this. You leave it on kind of like an open cliffhanger, like an o- slightly open ending, and I'm like, I want more. <laughs> <laughs> That's the idea. That's yeah. The idea. Some someone the other night was complaining to me that I kept them up at night with a Levon book. I said, Oh, good. <laughs> that's that's mission accomplished. Exactly. <laughs> now, Chuck, um, before you go, is there any upcoming uh, work or stuff coming out that you would like to, you know, sort of like let listeners know? Like, I don't know if there's trades coming out, that kind of thing. I know that recently a Marvel Knights collection of your stuff came out. It's it's being shipped to me at this point in time by Amazon. It came out quite recently. Yeah, 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 yeah. Marvel Knights collection, and uh, there's a um, Jeeves collection should be out, should be ready soon. Uh, Excellent. For Christmas. Excellent. Uh, on Amazon and. And then I'm, I'm working on a whole bunch of stuff that 
it's too early to talk about. Sure. Well, Chuck, thank you, you so go. much. This has been a really <laughs> fascinating talk. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've tried to have a bit of fun with you tonight. Um, it's 4 a.m. here in Sydney, Australia, so we've been talking for a while. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is 12, o'clock, 12 o'clock noon here in Florida. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Chuck Dixon. We'd love to have you back whenever, man. Yeah, anytime, anytime. I always have fun talking to you, David. Thanks, Chuck.